Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, hi, welcome everyone. And I am live from the USBLN conference with the new name. I get to be the first person media to announce our new name, and I love it, Disability In. Disability In. And you know why I love it? Don't try to relabel us, okay? Just like me living with epilepsy, I have a disability. I love this name, Disability In. And I know my close friend, Yoshiko Dart. Hello, Yoshiko. I know that you would love that name also. And, hey, a special shout-out to Ireland. I don't know what's going on there. You are still the number one listening audience 17 countries are now listening, but Ireland is rocking it. So thank you, and keep telling other people to listen. Um, I really appreciate so much what you're doing. So before I start, I want to thank our lead sponsor, Highmark, who is just an awesome company. Thank you so much all the way to the top with the CEO, David Holmberg, and President Deb Rice Johnson. And to another uh, sponsor, AudioEye. Todd Bagafir, thank you and thank you for having a product that's all about accessibility. So I want to tell you, I've been telling everyone at the conference about my guest. I'm so excited to have this guest. First of all, I love him, but talk about disability rights. He is known everywhere. He's known internationally. He is my go-to person. It's amazing how we often think the same about so many things, but he's my go-to person, and he is the CEO of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. Welcome to the show, Andy Imperato. Thank you, Joyce. It's great to be here. Well, Andy, since we have listeners everywhere, including throughout the world, um, I thought it would be best to begin by telling our listeners what is AUCD, which is the shortened version of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. What is AUCD and what is the mission? Well, thanks for that question, Joyce, and it's appropriate that we're talking about that today because today is Eunice Kennedy Shriver's birthday, and Eunice Kennedy Shriver was the most important person who helped to create my network. So we've been around, that we were authorized in the last piece of legislation that President Kennedy, her brother, signed into law. Originally there were 19 university-affiliated facilities, and the goal was to use the power of universities to improve outcomes for children with intellectual disabilities. That was the original focus. And then over time we've grown, so we now have over 100 university centers and programs around the country, at least one in every state and territory. And you can think of them as little mini think tanks where, you know, they're using uh, the knowledge that exists at universities to try to train professionals who are going to work with children and adults with disabilities to develop good programs that can be replicated that are evidence-based, to do research, to develop new evidence, and to cultivate leaders in this field who can do advocacy and policy work to create better outcomes for children and adults with disabilities. And what is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? I mean, in a nutshell, we are trying to use the power of universities to change the world with and for people with disabilities. I love the thing you said about the think tanks. I love that. So what are some of your initiatives for this year, Andy? Yeah, so, you know, this year it's been an interesting year for us. A lot of what we're doing is trying to protect things that we feel like we're under attack. Very important things that matter to our community have been under attack from the administration and from Congress, particularly the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. So this, is, this will be a continuing 
focus for us to try to avoid bad policy, protect programs that are critically important for children and adults with disabilities, and preserve bipartisan leadership and relationships that we've had for decades on disability issues. So that's, that is always going to be a priority for us as long as these programs are, continue to be criticized and we continue to have proposals from Congress to either repeal the Affordable Care Act, dramatically cut Medicaid, uh, weaken the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, there's a long list of bad things that have been proposed that we've had to fight against. Um, we're also trying to not just protect what we have, but, but advance policies that we think are important and can attract bipartisan support. So in that category is things like improving uh, disaster response after a hurricane or other natural disaster. I'm sure, Joyce, you, you're familiar with the difficulties that people have been having in Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, we have centers in every U.S. state and territory. So our center in Puerto Rico and our center at the U.S. Virgin Islands have both been very involved in trying to address the issues for children and adults with disabilities in those territories and to help FEMA and the other agencies who are responsible for disaster response do a better job serving people with disabilities in the territories and, and around the country. Um, another priority for us has been improving access to communication. We still have lots of children graduating from high school without the ability to communicate, um, meaning that they're not able to communicate what they want. And in that situation, oftentimes they end up living in a place or in an environment where they're not able to get what they want and to have the kind of life that they want. So we're working with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and a number of other groups on a coalition focused on what we're calling the right to communicate. The idea is everybody should have every opportunity to use whatever technology, whatever human support is going to work for them to enable them to express their wishes. And as you know, Joyce, there are a lot of people who cannot communicate verbally, but there are a lot of other ways to communicate, and we feel like this is something that our network is good at, finding ways to help people with very challenging disabilities or complex disabilities be able to find the right way to communicate what they want, when they want it, in a way that's easy for other people to understand. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention, which I know is something that you and I have worked on together, is employment. Uh, Senator Harkin continues to have the employment for people with disabilities as his number one priority, and I've been very honored to work with him, and I know you've been part of it, of these international Harkin summits. We've done two of them. We've got another one coming up in November, where we're really trying to challenge a global community to double the labor force participation rates of people with disabilities between now, he, he announced the goal to double them between November of last year, 2017, and November of 2027. So now we've got nine years. And so in the United States, that would mean going from about 35% of people with disabilities in the labor force to getting up to 70%, which would be a lot closer to where uh, people without disabilities are in terms of labor force participation rates. So that's a big, bold, audacious goal, and I think it's exciting to work with Senator Harkin, work with you, work with Tony Coelho, and so many great leaders, the folks Jill Houghton and the folks that are here at the, at the formerly known USBLN, currently known Disability Inn Conference, to really try to build a global community that is going to transform employment outcomes for people with disabilities. And Andy, that has been such a long climb when you think the ADA was signed in 1990. Um, you know, do you think it's going to take the business community to mobilize this since that's where the jobs are? Or do you think it will be a combination, you know, of the disability community and, and uh, the business community? I mean, I think the insight that Senator Harkin has had around these Harkin summits, Joyce, and you can tell me if you think he's right, is that if we really want to transform employment outcomes, we have to get the business community to step up in a more aggressive way with a greater willingness to take risks. Um, they can't do it by themselves. They have to do it with partners, and the disability community is a critical partner. But I think from his perspective, we've had too many years of coming together like-minded people talking about why can't we get more people into the labor force. 
and we have not engaged the business community enough at the top level. That's something that you've always done, Joyce. You've always engaged CEOs, but you're very unusual. <laughs> Most of the folks in our space do not have the level of engagement or access to the top leadership in the business community, and that's where we need to be with this conversation. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Because when people ask me, oh, what do we need to do? I said, you need to go where the jobs are. You know, of course, disability inclusion, HR, all these groups are helpful and can help us, but they can't hire people. You know, the operations people hire people. That's why it'd be so great if operations partners with talent programs, you know, to really support getting this moving. But at the end of the day, that's what I always say, don't talk about it, hire someone. Because we can have, as Andy said, meetings forever on the why How about let's have a meeting on the when are we hiring people? The now are we hiring people? So I agree with you. And I just want to say, uh, Senator Harkin, as Andy said, is just the most wonderful person and leader for the disability community. And he may have retired, but he never left us. You know, he never left the disability community. An example of that is the Harkin Summit. So with that, we're going to get ready to go to break. Hey, if you just joined us, we are at the next in conference, as Andy said, known to probably all of you as the USBLN. I love that new name, Disability In. But we are in that conference in Las Vegas. So excited to be talking to you. And we're going to be right back with Andy to talk more about his work nationally. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Rick Harrison from Pawstars. I'm here to talk to you about the Epilepsy Foundation. I had bad seizures until I was a teenager. I thought I wouldn't have a chance to grow up, but I dared to think differently. My epilepsy taught me to be a fighter. When I said I wanted to make a TV series about my pawn shop, people thought I was nuts. But I dared to defy the odds, and Pawn Stars was born. If you have epilepsy, dare to live your fullest potential. The Epilepsy Foundation will help you dare. Visit epilepsy.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone, and we're with Andy Imperato, CEO and Executive Director of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, better known as AUCD, and Andy, it's so great to have you with us. I was so excited earlier when, you know, you were talking about intellectual disabilities, because I know... I myself at Bender Consulting Services, everyone knows my company focuses on competitive employment for people with disabilities. And we still have a long way to go, especially in one area. Well, we have a long way to go, period. 
but there's one that I consider almost abysmal, and that is for people with intellectual disabilities, and that's twice as high as the general general population. What I wanted to ask you is, when we talk about the employment of people with disabilities, do you feel that possibly that's not talked among, amongst people enough? Because many people, you know, when they think of competitive jobs for people with intellectual disabilities, they still think of sheltered workshops. And they don't envision that someone could, you know, move into some type of white collar position. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think I think you're exactly right, Joyce. I, I also think with the, within the intellectual disability population, like every disability population, you've got a lot of diversity. And I think sometimes the people with intellectual disabilities who have the most opportunities in employment are people who are coming from families that have resources, you know, that have uh, you know a status that helps them connect with employers. And I think there's a lot of folks with intellectual disabilities from communities of color, from immigrant communities, other low-income communities, who have almost no opportunities in terms of competitive integrated employment or any employment. Um, and I think it starts with us having an expectation as a society that it's good for people with disabilities to work, including people with intellectual disabilities, and that their lives are more full when they have the opportunity to work in a competitive environment where they're interacting with people with and without disabilities. And I think there's a strong consensus that that is true, but I don't know that, that parents around this country or around the world have completely bought into that. Lots of parents want their children with intellectual disabilities when they become adults to be safe. And sometimes safe is defined as being in a setting where they're not going to be challenged too much, they're not going to um, have their feelings hurt, they're not going to be embarrassed, they're not going to get injured when they're trying to get to work. They're not going to get lost. And sometimes the goal of safety can get in the way of people having a full life. You know, Tony Coelho spoke at the USBLN, or now Disability In Commerce, this morning, and he talked about how people with disabilities should have the right to fail. Well, I think one of the groups within the disability community that is given that right the least are people with intellectual disabilities. And I, the other thing I would just say on this is uh, we have an employee at AUCD um, who's following in the footsteps of Joyce Bender. Uh, her name is Liz Weintraub. She's a proud woman with an intellectual disability, and she does a weekly show called Tuesdays with Liz where she interviews people about policy issues and keeps the conversation at a level where people with intellectual disabilities and other folks who are not policy professionals can follow the conversation. So she's got a show on this week where she's talking about the Supreme Court and why it's important for people with disabilities. Liz is a great example of somebody with intellectual disability who is working as a professional in a national organization having an impact for people with disabilities around the country. And Liz should not be in a category of one. We should have lots of people like Liz all over this country who have high visibility jobs where they're making a huge impact for their employer which is what Liz Weintraub is doing for AUCD. Yeah, and she is phenomenal. Andy, how do people uh, get to that show? So if you just Google Tuesdays with Liz, it's a YouTube show, and, and, and the, the site, our site on YouTube will come up, and you can watch the episodes, and it's also searchable. And while we're talking about this, what is your website? The AUCD website is aucd.org. AUCD.org, and I just want to tell you, there's so much great information on that website, so make sure that you go. But Andy's right. Okay, I'm going to say to someone, hey, tune into this radio show, Tuesdays with Liz. Never are they going to envision this is a person with an intellectual disability, and just as Andy uh implied one person with an intellectual disability is one person. And there's this tendency to just put everyone in the same category. I want to say that uh, Justin Hako was an employee of mine, and he works at Highmark. And first he worked, and they have a very high-tech 
uh, mail room, and then he moved up to the print shop, and now he's promoted again, uh, and totally out of that area, and he's been there for like 15 years, uh, and he's a person with Down syndrome, and he, he is phenomenal, and he he now has a great job with a salary, a competitive salary, and outstanding benefits. And so, you know, it is possible. But what's sad is when people across the country have to use a very few examples when they're talking about this. But Andy, that is really great that you're doing that uh, with Liz because you're making a statement right there by doing that. Well, I, I just feel very blessed to be able to work with Liz every day. She makes a huge contribution to our office. She did a detail with Senator Casey, one of your senators from Pennsylvania, um, and made a huge impact in that office and in the Senate. She met with the diversity folks that were running the diversity initiative for the Senate and pushed them hard to include people with intellectual disabilities in the initiative, and they're doing it. Which is awesome. Okay, well, Andy, you know, you were talking earlier about Senator Harkin and his goal. It is hard to believe that we will soon be at the 30th anniversary of the ADA. Andy, I was with you at the 10th anniversary of the ADA. I still remember it. Uh, And actually, I met Andy in like 1997. So we have really known each other for a long time. But here we are, who could believe it, that we're going to be at the 30th anniversary. And still, as Tony was talking about, and as Andy was talking about, we still have this extremely high unemployment, like 70% of people with disabilities not counted in the labor force. So, Andy, do you, how much do you think we can move that needle as we approach the 30th anniversary? Well, I do think, Joyce, it's going to depend on companies getting serious about setting goals and holding their managers accountable for achieving those goals. I mean, I think it's sad that everybody keeps using Walgreens as the example because it's not... I mean, this, this is, we've been using Walgreens as the example for over 10 years now. <laughs> but Walgreens set a goal under Randy Lewis's leadership that 50% of all their hires in a distribution center would be people with disabilities, and they set a goal that 20% of all their hires in all their distribution centers would be people with disabilities. If we could get 100 large employers to set goals like that and be serious about it and hold their their managers accountable to achieve those goals, that's how we're going to move the needle. Um, And I just, I mean, how many other employers do you know that have set that kind of a bold goal and told the public that they were doing it? Right. Uh, The only one close to that is Highmark, Uh, And I think David Holmberg is going to do something along those lines. But Andy's right. Every time I hear this story, it's Walgreens. Every time. You know, come on. We've got to have other companies doing this. And where the rubber meets the road is hiring people. For example, many companies have these uh, diversity goals, bonuses, that actually they give hiring managers for how many diverse people they brought on board. How often do you think that includes disability? Rarely. And, you know, we need to, another company I work with, here's the rule they have. I'm not going to tell you to hire someone with a disability, but every time you have an opening, you have to interview someone with a disability. And, you know, I I mean, it it, it isn't going to happen without companies doing it. And I mean, it's great to go to these events like what we're having here. And it's great to go to training and it's great to talk about global diversity and all these things. But that's still not employment. You know, employment, What? that's where it's going to make the difference when people have meaningful careers, not just jobs, but careers. Enjoy well, just to to put an idea out there, so 2020, 30th anniversary of the ADA, July 26th. 
what if we put some pressure on employers in the United States to make commitments to pay, have paid internships for a certain number of students with disabilities that summer with the goal that we can get to a million or two million or ten million, whatever we can get to, paid internships for students with disabilities all over the country that summer. I feel like that's the kind of thing that will make a difference over the long term. As you know, having paid interns is one of the best indicators that somebody is going to be in the labor market after they leave school if they have a positive paid work experience while they're in school. And it changes the culture at the employers because they have all these folks with disabilities. It's, it's like Disability Mentoring Day, but it's better because they're there for the whole summer. So let's really push paid internships for that summer. That feels doable to me. And we can do that without any involvement from the government. You know, the private sector can decide to do that. Andy, that is a great idea. I love that idea. And Pittsburgh can lead the way, Joyce. Get, get all your buddies in Pittsburgh to set a goal. You guys could have 1,000 students in Pittsburgh. Oh, I think that's great. And I, I, I love this. Uh, I love this because of tying it in to the 30th anniversary. Uh, oh, I'm going to be working with Andy on this. Here we go. It's the Imperato Challenge. We got it going on now. <laughs> And paid interns in as this, I mean, that's what makes the difference because there are companies that won't hire people who are entry level. However, if they get experience, they can say, oh, but I've had this experience at Bear, Highmark, you know, wherever it is. Andy, that is a brilliant idea. And I'll be able to say it came up on my radio show. So... That's right. I think we should call it the Bender Challenge, Joyce. I'm happy for you to brand it. <laughs> well, I love that idea. I do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with you on that. I am because, wow, how, how smart is that? No wonder you have all these academic achievements, Andy. You're really smart. But really, now, anyone listening to the show... This is a fabulous idea. This is a great way to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the ADA. You will make a difference in employment. Did you notice the word about internships, Andy said paid? I mean, at my company, and we're a very small company, but we have interns and they are all paid. You know, we don't need these not paid and unpaid internships. So, oh, Andy, I'm so excited. So excited about your idea. And I want to tell you, which leads into my next question, um, interns, entry-level people, all levels of people with mental health issues, psychiatric disabilities, are having an extremely hard time gaining employment. And right before I came up to do this radio show, I had someone come up to me um, and she works for CVS and she wants to become a national spokesperson for people with mental health issues. She herself had severe depression and, you know, she, she really wants companies to realize that you can do it. And yes, there may be some accommodations, but you can do it. By the way, I loved what Tony said today. We don't need accommodations. We need included. I mean, we've got to, we've got to work on this. What, what we were talking about, Andy, every time there's a shooting, every time, and they bring up mental health, it just sets everything back when I'm talking to companies. So... Andy, what do you think about that? Why do you think there is such incredible stigma in this area? The, the unemployment rate is sky high. Uh, I know you are a disability rights leader in this area. So what, what do you think about it? What do you think we could do? Well, first, as you know, Joyce, I have bipolar disorder myself, which I've been open about throughout my career. And it's very sad to me that there are lots of people with mental illness who work in the disability space who are not comfortable being out at work. So I feel like one of the things we have to do 
is have a movement for people to be out at work with their mental illness. You know, similar to being out at work as a part of the LGBT community, it's, it's part of who you are, and you should be able to bring your whole self to work. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm an optimist, Joyce. I feel like the generation that my children are part of, you know, I have two boys, a 24-year-old and a 19-year-old, this generation is bringing up the mental health issues in a more aggressive way on college campuses. They're bringing it up in a more aggressive way with employers. And I'm feeling like the stigma is going to go down as people with mental illness are more comfortable being out with their mental illness and having a political identity around that to the extent that they're not getting the services that they need. And their peers are seeing that as a civil rights issue and going to bat for them. I'm seeing that happen when my son was at Yale. It happened at Yale. My other son is at Pomona. It's happening at Pomona. People are agitating on college campuses right now to get better services for their classmates or for themselves, and that is starting a national conversation that we have to stop ignoring this as a civil rights issue. Oh, I I mean, that generation, they are going to be the group that promotes a lot of change in this area, but I want to say something. I told uh, this businesswoman that spoke to me, I'll go to a company and they'll say, Joyce, we're so glad you're here, you know, because we really want an initiative to start hiring people with disabilities. And I'll say, oh, but you already have. They're working here right now. They have depression, bipolar disorder, epilepsy, MS. They're here And they're successful. It's just they aren't telling you because of the stigma attached to epilepsy and mental illness. Uh, Andy, why do you think that is with uh, mental illness? Why do you think, do you just think it's fear, uh, like with epilepsy, you know, or what do you think? I mean, I think a lot of it is ignorance. um, And I think some of the ignorance and fear comes from where people get their information about mental illness. You know, most people get their information about mental illness from television and from the media. And most of the media images of people with mental illness are not positive. You know, there's a strong connection in the media between mental illness and violence. As you already mentioned, every time there's a horrible shooting, the first thing reporters ask is, oh, was the person mentally ill? As if that would explain why they just killed 20 people. Um, And as long as people are getting that that message over and over again, we are going to have a stigma connected to mental illness. And I really believe, Christine Griffin said this very powerfully. She wasn't just talking about mental illness, but she said the way that people change their attitudes towards people with disabilities is when they're working alongside somebody with a disability and they see what they can do in the workplace. Well, that's especially true for people with mental illness, but if everybody with mental illness in the workplace isn't comfortable being out with their mental illness, then the attitudes are not going to change. Right. And and I have had uh, companies, of course, the person that's telling me this will say, now this isn't me. But I have other people that work here, they're really afraid of hiring someone with a mental illness, which I can't even believe they tell me this. And I'll say, really? I mean, one in five people have depression. You have people here right now. They're working here right now. That right. So, uh, Joyce, the best way to respond to that is to say, there is no way you can avoid hiring people with mental illness. It's like avoiding hiring people who are going to get pregnant or avoiding hiring people who are going to get cancer. You can't avoid it. It's going to happen. So the question is, are you going to create a work environment where they can perform at their best or are you going to ignore it and force them into the closet because you don't want to deal with it? Yeah. And, you know, I often tell people, you do know there are people that rob banks and do all sorts of terrible things that kill people. I mean, this whole thing is so so terrible to me, how this is portrayed. But there's people like Andy and many other successful people that talk about, in, including celebrities, that talk about uh, their mental health. And what Andy said is true, though, and what Chris said is true. 
when you hire someone and you work side by side with someone with any disability, but right now I'm talking about uh, mental illness, it will change the way you think. Can happen, though. Can happen if you don't open those doors uh, to employment. Now, Andy, we've got a lot of things coming up here with our elections. And I always, and I've heard you talk about this, Andy, how we have this huge, silent voting block that's enormous. I mean, there are, think how many people with disabilities live in this country. We are the largest minority. Um, and so we have a huge voting block. And one thing I think we need to work on is seeing more people with disabilities registered to vote. Um, and you've told me this also, Andy, before. The more people that are registered to vote, the more attention the candidates will pay to our minority group. So what do you think about that? I mean, for example, what what ideas do you have about what we could do to increase the voting of people with disabilities? Well, you know, I've been inspired by this group that grew up around the healthcare fight called Little Lobbyists. Have you have you seen these folks, George? These are these are young parents with young children with medically complex disabilities who are very political, <laughs> and they are signing up voters to be healthcare voters. And their their point is that people's lives are at stake. You know, this is, this is very serious business when we're talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, getting rid of pre-existing condition, or going back to having pre-existing condition exclusions, $800 million cuts to Medicaid. I mean, there's very serious things that have been put on the table. That creates an opportunity to organize and get people to realize that voting is the way to change the dynamics of that debate. You know, if we have more people who support the Affordable Care Act, in the House of Representatives and the Senate, then the Affordable Care Act is not going to be as vulnerable as it is right now. Um, so I think we need to use the issues that are the issues that animate the voters. One of those issues is health care. I mean, our new public policy director at AUCD is a mom of two kids with medically complex disabilities. She and her husband would have been middle class if they didn't have those kids, but because of the kids and the failings of our health care system, they lived in poverty, and their kids were uninsured and uninsurable until the Affordable Care Act passed. And because of the Affordable Care Act, they were able to move into the middle class. Well, there are lots of families like that all over this country, and we need to organize them as a voting block. It's not just the people with disabilities. It's also their families. You know, when I was at APD, I thought of it as anybody who has a strong disability interest when they're voting is a disability voter. So it's parents, it's siblings, it's spouses, it's people with disabilities, it's special education teachers, it's vocational rehabilitation counselors, it's occupational therapists, it's neurologists. You know, all of these folks understand that Medicaid is important and will understand when you talk to them about voting that you have to pay attention to where the candidates stand on an issue like Medicaid or the Affordable Care Act. And there are people <clears throat> in facilities uh, that, you know, don't know anything about this. I mean, we really have to get a campaign going to make sure we get people registered. But just as you said, it's an all-encompassing group because people have brothers, sisters, partners, children, whatever, that have disabilities. I'm wondering, what do you think we, you know, it's like our group and the disability rights group, they, you know, they know all this stuff going on. But I'm wondering, what do you think we can do to get this known nationally? Like, I know Rachel Maddow covered, you know, what happened with the disability community uh, protesting in reference to Medicaid cuts. But what, what do you think we could do so that more Americans realize these issues that impact them and they probably don't know that it does? 
I mean, Joyce, I think a big part of it is telling stories. You know, stories like Rylan Rogers, who is our policy director at AUCD. What happened to her family because of the failings of our health care system? I remember when Elizabeth Warren was a Harvard law professor, and I was at AAPD. She called me one day out of the blue and said, I just want you to know that one half of personal bankruptcies in this country are people who cannot pay their health care bills. And she said, I want you to know that because a lot of those people are people with disabilities. You know, that, that's an example. When we, when we were working on the Affordable Care Act, the message that I wish President Obama and the Democrats in Congress had used more when they were trying to sell that bill was the idea that we need a health care system that will be there for you when you need it the most. Because if, if, you, if you explain the bill that way, then people who like their health insurance or are healthy and don't think it matters will realize they don't know when they're going to need real health care. They don't know when they're going to need no cap on how much can be spent on their health care because they just got a very expensive chronic condition. So I think part of it is just educating the public about how vulnerable we all are when we have an inadequate health care system in this country. And I like the ideas of the stories because you're right. Like that story you just told is so powerful. I, I really think that is important. And Andy, do you ever have stories like that on your uh, website? We do. We do, and we did a lot of that during the Medicaid fight. We had Medicaid stories trying to help people understand what was the real-world consequences of the Medicaid cuts. That's good. Well, listen, we want to talk more, but we've got to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Andy Imperato, CEO of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, AUCD, live from the USBLN, now called Disability and Conference. We'll be right back with Andy. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars. I'm here to talk to you about the Epilepsy Foundation. I had bad seizures until I was a teenager. I thought I wouldn't have a chance to grow up but I dared to think differently. My epilepsy taught me to be a fighter. When I said I wanted to make a TV series about my pawn shop, people thought I was nuts. But I dared to defy the odds, and Pawn Stars was born. If you have epilepsy, dare to live your fullest potential. The Epilepsy Foundation will help you dare. Visit epilepsy.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at one 866 472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. And you know, every show, and we want to keep you up to date with what is going on in the disability community. So every show, we have a segment called Advocacy Matters with my good friend, Perry Jude Radisick from the Pennsylvania Disability Rights Network. Perry, are you there? I, I am, Joyce, and thanks for having me, and congratulations on what sounds like it's going to be a great conference this week out in Las Vegas, and uh, it's been a great show listening to uh, the conversation between you and Andy. It's uh, great ideas and uh, two powerhouses. It's fantastic. So uh, this week on Advocacy Matters, I actually wanted to bring up the issue of opioid use in America, which is really front and center for all of us. We hear about it in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and the media. 
uh, we see friends, acquaintances, and family members uh, may experience opioid addiction, and sadly, we may even see uh, friends and family members and coworkers uh, go through uh, the experience of uh, we see them uh, experience death. And so, Pennsylvania, like other states, uh, certainly we know no boundaries when it comes to opioid uh, addiction. And uh, what complicates things for people with disabilities is that uh, there really are some chronic pain issues involved with uh, the use of opioids. And so as uh, regulations at the federal and state level move to restrict the use of opioids, we start to run into barriers uh, to access for legitimate uses for opioids. So the disability community begins to feel the impact of the uh, restrictions on the use of opioids. So it really becomes a very complex issue for people with disabilities, and it's much more complicated than just labeling people as addicted or sending them to treatment because there are real chronic pain issues in the community. We know that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Administration on Community Living, has sought public comment on the issue. They've been issued, they've issued an RFP to continue to research and study the issue. So next week, Joyce, we'd like to dive a little more into the issue of opioids and uh, talk a little more detail into it. But for now, we just wanted to um, mention that it is a complex issue with regulations that create barriers to legitimate uses of opioids and, uh, and that there really are uh, some people with real chronic pain issues. Oh, that is such an important topic. Uh, Andy, did you want to make a comment about that? Well, that's definitely a topic that we've been paying attention to at AUCD, and I know Harry Jude's national organization, the National Disability Rights Network, is paying attention to it. It's, it's getting a lot of attention in social media. There's a lot of young people who are very active on social media who are talking about the kind of unintended consequences for their ability to get very important pain medication. So um, I appreciate Perry Jude bringing it up. I do think um, it's being brought to the attention of the folks in the administration who are working on a response to opioids but I don't know that we've really broken through on this yet where, where, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services is acknowledging that it's an important issue. And Andy's right. I think it's hard to break through because the focus is so much on and the funding is so focused on treatment and addiction, and it's hard to break through and get folks to realize that there are legitimate uses and uh, it, it's hard to be heard right now. Well... Uh, Perry Jude, you don't know how much I appreciate you calling in. Perry, what is your website, Perry Jude? Yes, our website is www.disabilityrights.org. That's disabilityrights.org. And after our show next week, we'll have more information about uh, the work that AUCD is doing and uh, the National Council on Independent Living. We'll have more resources up on our website next week uh, for people to explore this issue. Well, thank you so much. And next week again, every show, Advocacy Matters. Thanks, Perry Jude. Sure, you guys have a good conference. Thank you, thank you. Andy, um, before we go, wow, I can't believe how fast this show is going. My question is, uh, Justin Dart, what impact did he have on you? Because you've talked about him before. I know Yoshiko's listening. So um, I thought maybe you could share with us the impact he had on your life. Well, I think Justin, more than any leader who I've been privileged to, to work closely with, kind of modeled for me something that, that Cornell West says about leadership. He, he says that in order to lead people, you have to love people. And it, when I first met Justin, uh, I had never worked with somebody who told me that he loved me at the end of every conversation. You know, you had a phone call with Justin at the end of the phone call. He said, I love you. <laughs> and he meant it. 
every every speech that Justin gave at the end of the speech he said colleagues I love you and he meant it you know so for me that was powerful you know to see somebody who had gotten to a point where he had the capacity to genuinely love every person he came into contact with and to make you feel like you mattered to him and to our movement Justin saw a role for everybody in our movement everybody was an important person everybody was a VIP Everybody was a patriot to Justin, and he just brought out the best in people. You know, and to me, that really is what leadership is about. It's about loving people and valuing them so that they can be their best selves when they're with you. Yes. <clears throat> Through the State Department, I have gone as an expert on the employment of people with disabilities to different countries. And when I went to Japan, I went to this disability rights center, and it was so amazing to see all these things up everywhere about Justin and the signing of the ADA, but lead on everywhere, everywhere. Um, And, you know, he did have an impact internationally, but certainly he had an impact on the signing of the ADA. And I only wish that I'd had the chance to know him longer. I only knew him for a short time, but it didn't matter how long you knew Justin, he made an immediate impact on you as if you were the only person in the room. I mean, he just had that way. Uh, well, and, well, and, and Joyce, Joyce, Justin didn't just have an impact on Japan. Japan had an impact on Justin. <laughs> uh, you know, Yoshiko Dart was probably the most important person in Justin's life. And much of what Justin accomplished, he accomplished in part because he had Yoshiko with him as a full partner. So I think Japan is grateful to Justin, but I know Justin was grateful for Japan as well. Oh, yes, that's so true. Good point, Andy, good point. Uh, So, Andy, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I'd like to leave with a message that I think is appropriate on Eunice Kennedy Shriver's birthday, and it was said today by John Kemp and by Tony Coelho, and that is to be bold. If you think about what Eunice Kennedy Shriver did with her life, the Special Olympics International, just as one example, She had an impact all over the world for a population that most people thought didn't matter. And she would not have achieved that if she wasn't bold. So I think the best thing I can say is as we come up to the 30th anniversary of the ADA, let's be bold, let's try things that nobody has tried, and let's accomplish more than anybody thought was possible. Yes, let's be bold. And here we have... The Imperato Bender Challenge about how you're going to bring on those paid interns celebrating the 30th anniversary of the signing of the ADA. Andy, thank you so much for being with us at the Disability In Conference. Love that name. Um, And one more time, what is your website? One more time, the website is aucd.org, and I'm Andy AUCD on Twitter, and I love you, Joyce. I love you, too, and you heard the website. You can make a contribution today. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.